this morning. We sang that song. Did you catch that in there? The Lord sings over us. Did you know that's true? Zephaniah says that. um, The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He'll take great delight in you. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that an interesting thought? That your maker, the holy God of the universe, rejoices over you in song. I think that's why people, God's people love to sing. God is a God of music. He made music for us and I love the opportunity when we can sing together. Not only to Him, we sing those praises to Him, but we're singing to one another too as we sing these songs together um, this morning. Thanks, uh, thanks, Dave, for leading us. Well, this morning, in our uh, Echoes of the Reformation class, which you've been uh, started a couple weeks ago, you can jump in at any time, by the way. Uh, they're sort of standalone messages. You can jump in next week even at 8.30 if you wanted to. But this morning, in that class, it was a topic of Scripture alone. So I told them they're getting a double dosage, because that's kind of what we're talking about today, and I will not repeat everything I said over there. So they're still all here, so that's a good sign. Um, and I can't think of a better passage today to complement what um, we talked about over there. Scripture alone, from 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 17. And in many ways, um, these passages before us today and then next week, in many ways, they were the very reason I chose this letter for uh, this series in the life of our church right now, the life of Bethany Church. Not only Bethany Church, but in the life of the larger church, this, this idea of the authority of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture, you might say. The, the, the relevance of Scripture is being challenged today. But what's interesting, it's challenged in every age. Every age challenge, challenges the truth of Scripture with their own challenges uh, and its claims of truth. Every generation does this. From the beginning of time, with God's Word, to now, from the beginning of time. In our era, the current challenge is to God's teaching on sexuality, on gender, on masculinity, on femininity, and and larger family issues, you might say. Issues that are tied, I would say, intimately even to the gospel, right? Christ, the groom and the bride, husband and wife, male and female. In our age, our culture cannot stand what the Bible says about these things. This This is our age now. Every age does it. Every age challenges Scripture. However, our culture loves what the Bible says about mercy, don't we? We love what the Bible says about forgiveness. We love that. However, American culture does not like what it says about our bodies. We don't. And there's actually an an intellectual dishonesty, you might say, when the culture or the church flat out denies what the Bible says. When that's what it really says on an issue. Any issue, really. But in our age, it happens to be on gender on sexuality or family issues, which it clearly speaks on. There can be an intellectual dishonesty. But I'm grateful that at times there's even those who are intellectually honest that don't even agree with it. They own it. Uh, That what it says on gender, what it says on sexuality, what it says on family, they know what it says, but they're just, I, I appreciate they say, I know what it says, I just don't like it. There's a man like Andrew Sullivan, writer, Uh, homosexual, self-designated Christian now says this, 
I do not doubt that the Bible condemns homosexual acts. Says, I don't doubt it. Any intellectually honest Christian defense of gay love and relationships needs to confront that reality. We reformists are clearly confronting what we believe are the false premises and assumptions about homosexuality that we find in Scripture. At least he's honest. I'm grateful for that. I appreciate that, because then we can at least have an uh, honest dialogue there. I appreciate that. He realizes what the Bible says about these things, but he doesn't want to give it credence. I don't like it, basically, is what he's saying. But here we, here we go. Before we get carried away, though, and thinking like, I know those people who just won't follow God's word. Here's the question for us. What is it for you? Maybe it's that one. It could be. But what is it for you? There's got to be something in God's word that each and every one of us has read before that's caused you to pause, just kind of stop. Something you don't like, maybe, or you want to challenge, or has stopped you, maybe even dead in your tracks when you read it. There's something for all of us. So before we get into you know, those, those people, it's us too, isn't it? What could it be for you? Maybe it's what the Bible says on money. Maybe it's what it says uh, on lust that you don't like. Maybe it's God's word on forgiving others for you that, that you don't like. Maybe it's God's words on, on loving your neighbor. Maybe it's his words on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he's the only way to God. There's something in there this morning that's for all of us. We look at God's Word and we think about it as authoritative. It's not just those people. It's us. It's us in the church too. If it's a God-inspired book, so if it's the Word of God, let's ask this question. Don't you think something in it should probably offend you? Right? I think so. Or something in it should, should, should cause you to pause and challenge you Somewhere in your life, if it's God's Word, shouldn't it challenge you? Or maybe even stop you right in your tracks as you read it. It should, if it's God's Word. I mean, if we're creatures, if we're creatures, and He's God, and it's His Word, of course something in it is going to stop you. Or it's going to challenge you. Or you're going to want to disagree with it. It's God's Word. But why? Why does this struggle reassert itself in every generation because it does why every generation and every person it reasserts itself from time to time when you read the bible why is that here it's pretty simple in one way we don't like to live under authority you and i don't like to live under authority i don't like to be under someone's authority remember genesis 3 that story back in the garden we all do because it still echoes in the human heart that idea of authority. I don't like authority. You remember it. You see the verses there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's Satan saying to Eve there? He's saying to her, True freedom, Eve, True freedom is throwing off the shackles of somebody else's authority. True freedom is getting rid of the God that say that, God's authority. God's word, did he actually say, don't eat Eve? Be your own authority, Eve. Come on, Eve. Come on, Adam. 
Be your own authority. That's true freedom. Be your own pilot. That's actually just another form of enslavement. Because what do you do? If you're your only guide, if you're your only authority, then every appetite, every desire your heart can manufacture, you've got to follow it headlong to be true to yourself. That's actually just another form of enslavement. We think it's true freedom to only follow what we want, what I want, my heart's desires, but then guess what? You're a slave to your own heart. And wherever it takes you, you're going to go. And it could take us, every one of us knows, a lot of bad places, can it? A lot of dangerous places. A lot of destructive places it can take us. If that's how our heart works, we don't like authority. So Paul says in, in the very first verse there, 14, take a look at it with me, chapter 3, verse 14, he reminds Timothy, continue, he says, continue. Did God really say? Because that's the question that gets our heart. Chapter 3, verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you've learned. He says, but you, Timothy, but as for you, Timothy, we talk about those false teachers that were coming from the church, he says, you though, you Bethany Church, you, Timothy, you continue in what you've learned. Hold to it. His grandmother, remember, and his mother, we learned that in this book, had taught him the truth. And Paul says, keep learning. Know what you've heard. Know who taught it to you. But also keep learning. Continue, continue. Keep learning is what Paul is saying. It's a question for us. Do you see yourself as a lifelong student of the Bible? That's what Paul's saying to Timothy a leader in the church, but that's all of us. You've got the word in your lap too. He's saying, continue in it. Do you see yourself as a lifelong student of God's word? And I would say more than just Sunday morning. This is good. This is great. Taking it into our life groups and discussing it is almost even better. It's fantastic. That's why they're so important. But it's more than that too. And what you believe, Paul said. Continue in what you believe. It's not just what you've heard. But what you believe, Paul said, are you convinced? Not only are you studying God's word, is it something important to you, but are you convinced that what it says is true? And I would add to that, good. Good for us. It's actually good for us. Do you think about that? God's authority in his word is actually good for us. You would be lost without it. We wouldn't know why we're here on this earth. We'd be groping around blindly in the dark. Scripture describes those that don't have the truth. It's good for us. It was good for God to place the tree there and say don't eat it because it reminded them, oh, I'm under someone's authority. He made me. I didn't just, poop pop into existence. He made me. That's what these verses are taking us this morning. What do you think of the Bible? It's been called a good book of rules, hasn't it? It's been called a good book of rules. It's been called a good book. It's been called a book of stories that has some heroes in it. It's been called a myth. Today we're going to see three truths in this passage. Three truths that I love. Three truths that are dear to my heart that show us it's so much more. It's God's book. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got it open. Have your text open to 2 Timothy 3 as we see the first truth is this. The scriptures are God breathe what a weird word that is or a weird phrase the scriptures are god breathed take a look at verse 16 with me 
all Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We're focusing on the first part of this verse here for just a moment. We're kind of actually working backwards today. What does it mean that your Bible is God-breathed? What does that mean? It's a curious phrase, as I said, that Paul uses. What does it mean? Let's, let's kind of unpack it for a minute. Let's look at a few things about that phrase. What does all Scripture mean? All Scripture is God-breathed. Paul uses a really technical term there. We don't have to get caught up in it, but just to know that he uses a real technical term there called uh, graphe. And when he uses that term, he's identifying what was considered God's Word at this moment when he wrote this letter. When he says Scripture, that's the term he uses. It was the Old Testament he's saying. That was a term that was used at that time. When you said that term, you knew what it meant. He was talking about the Old Testament Bible, the scriptures they had, the sacred writings, he calls them. All scripture, he says. And he says all of them, doesn't he? He says all of them. All the scriptures are God-breathed. Here's what that means. You and I, we don't get to pick and choose. As Paul says, all Scripture now. We don't get to pick and choose parts of the Bible as we live it, as we teach it, as we study it, or to choose which commands we like and, and which we want to kind of kick to the curb, right? Which we dislike. All Scripture, Paul says. All Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it's from God, Paul's saying to Timothy. Everything we've got that we've called Scripture is from Him. And he says, breathed out by God. Breathed out. That's the weird kind of phrase there. Now, it doesn't mean that men wrote the Scripture and God breathed into them, and it kind of just breathed into them, or they wrote the Scripture and then afterwards he breathed into the words, that life. Again, it's a really specific word Paul uses here, which means the very words themselves were breathed out by God's Spirit. It's a little different, isn't it, than saying they wrote it and then God made it His Word? No, Paul's saying He breathed it out. It came right from Him by God's Spirit, brought into existence by Him as He worked through the authors. There's no, there's no other place in the world where this has ever happened with any text. As that breath brought Adam into existence, breathed out Adam kind of into existence, in the same way, he breathed out his word. It came from him. It wasn't after the fact. Peter explains it for us. Take a look. Peter says this in 1 Peter 1. Knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, there's that word again, Scripture, that's why it's capitalized, comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by Spirit. There it is. Peter explains for us what breathed out is. It's breathed out by God. Another term we use is inspired. It's inspired by God. It means that scriptures, these scriptures are God's words to people. They are His words to people. It means they're accurate. It means they're good. It means they're true. It means they're right. It means they're true. It means they're true. It means they're true. 
God's Word. Let's look at, real quickly, um, I want to look at a few other references. But as we think about that, that's why I like to say at Bethany, when we open God's Word, God speaks. And when God speaks, when we open up His Word, He speaks, right? And he speaks through His Word because it's His Word. Here's a few passages, a few more for us. Acts 1.16, to show this, this, this thought continues throughout the entirety of Scripture. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Wrap your mind around that. <laughs> who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Whoa. The Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of King David hundreds of years before concerning something about Judas? Inspired by God. Here's another one. Jeremiah 34. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. The prophets knew this. All throughout the Old Testament when they're writing down things, speaking them to the people, they realized they were speaking in a unique way. That's why they said, thus says the Lord. Not me. I wouldn't want to say these things to you and take credit for them, right? With a lot of things the prophets said. Thus says the Lord. So Jeremiah even wrote it at the end of his book. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Even though I penned them, even though I wrote them down, even though I spoke them to you, the Lord wrote this. The Lord spoke this. Over and over again, the prophets say that. Thus says the Lord. Here's another one. We're just doing a rapid fire just to get a, make a case for this throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians 2.13 And we impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. There it is. God breathed the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul claims the very words themselves were from the Holy Spirit. The very words themselves were from the Holy Spirit. So how about now, you know, he's talking to Timothy about Scripture, and that was the Old Testament. So, all right, the Old Testament, I get that. The prophets really were speaking for God. And, but how about Jesus in the New Testament? Is that God's Word? Well, number one, we know Jesus knew, thought the Old Testament was God's Word. He quoted it all over the place, didn't he, in the New Testament? All over, he quoted it as God's authoritative Word. Jesus absolutely believed it was God-breathed. I mean, he, he based his life on speaking it everywhere he went with that authority. And he said, people, humans, men, women, will not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus believed that God was speaking in a unique way through these writers and through Scripture. He believed it to you. How about this one? 1 Timothy 5, 18. Where the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle, there's that word again, that Scripture you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. What's happening here? You might look at that at face value and go, what is, what's so special about that verse? You know what's happening in that verse? Right there. Paul's quoting both the Old Testament about the ox and then the words of Jesus and calling them both what? Scripture. Paul thought the very words that came out of Christ's mouth were Scripture. God breathed. because He was God. He's putting them right next to each other. That would have been pretty controversial at that time to say that Jesus' words were on par with Deuteronomy. I mean, that would have been revolutionary 
Paul says it. He says it to Timothy as well in 1 Timothy. Well, how about then? Let's go a little further. The Old Testament, okay, got that. Jesus' words, okay. He claimed to be God, so maybe he's speaking God's words. How about the New Testament then? Paul's writings, come on. Peter's writings, I mean, they say a lot of hard stuff. And some people make the case, you know, Paul says some things Jesus didn't even say. Paul's letters, that they're God-breathed, they're Scripture too. Well, look at Peter. Now, Peter's the apostle of Christ. Christ's right-hand man told Peter, feed my sheep with this word after I leave. Look at what Peter said about Paul's writings. And count the patience of our Lord with salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. We'd all agree, go, yes, there are, right? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions, as they do, here's the important phrase, what? The other scriptures. Peter looked at Paul's writings and he said, Paul's seen the risen Christ. He too is an apostle. Paul's letters are just like the other scriptures. Even Paul's letters. I go so far as to say is God's word inspired means that Paul's words are Jesus' words. Paul's words are Jesus' words. People say, you know, well, Jesus didn't talk about that. Only Paul did. If it's God-breathed, when Paul says it, it's Jesus' words. That's how God-breathed it is. It's God's word. It's incredible. All scripture now, we just made a real quick case that all scripture is God-breathed inspired, inerrant, word of God, and every age questions this though. Did God really say? Are you sure he said that? Is it really his word? Every age. Here's, here's a couple. Here's a previous generation. Winston Churchill, great man. Done, did many great things, but as he looked at uh, God's word in Christianity, he said this, one of these days perhaps the cold bright light of science and reason will shine through the cathedral windows. And we shall go out into the fields to seek God for ourselves. The great laws of nature will be understood. Our destiny and our past will be clear. We shall then be able to dispense with the religious toys. Religious toys, he called them. That agreeably fostered the development of mankind. He says, we'll get a a grasp on reality. We'll be able to do away with those things that humanity needed in the past to guide them. We've we've kind of come to a better place and, and understand really what's going on. Here's one much less articulate, but arguably just as influential. Pop star Miley Cyrus said, that's, can't even say it, bleeping insane. We've outgrown that fairy tale like we've outgrown the tooth fairy. You think there's not 10 million kids that are following and eating up every word she says, somebody in our generation too. It's insane. It's insane, she's saying, to believe that this is God's word. That's the culture we live in today. You're insane. I'm insane for believing that. It's a fairy tale. We've outgrown it like the tooth fairy. Not us. We must continue, Paul says to Timothy, because it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. But I look at my life, and I say I believe this, and I do believe it. And I know you do too, a lot of you, most of you probably. But I look at how I handle it. I look at how I forget it. I look at how my Bible at my house, my house now, I'm not doing an example, my house, 
can sit on my night table sometimes and get dust on it. You have that? Like, oh, yeah, there, it's there. It's close to me, but I haven't picked it up. And I think to myself, Jeff, this is God's word. It's his word. You can hear him speak today when you open it. People off, so often we say we, we want God to speak to us. God, give me direction. Give me a sign. But they don't realize this, this is this is God's breathed out word. And I think if we let that sink in even more, and why we have to, why Paul has to remind Timothy, and why he has to stand up here with us and remind us, is to keep, because we are prone to move away from it. We are prone to, did God really say? But if we let it sink in more and more, and we together remember it, I think we will begin to read it more when we're reminded. We will align our life with it more. We will believe it more. We'll we, we'll cherish it more. There's a video I want you to see in just a minute. The quality on it is not great. I looked and looked. Maybe you've seen it before, but the quality on it's not great. It's the best I can find, but it's powerful enough to where I just thought, you know, I wanted to show it um, because it's filmed by a missionary who went out to China. Maybe you've seen it before. And there's a group of Christians gathered, and they brought a, a, a box of Bibles to them that they had never had a copy to the Bi- uh, of the Bible in their own language before. Can you kill the lights, camera, and then we'll watch? It's only 50 seconds long, and then uh, it just, it's kind of powerful. It kind of speaks for itself. powerful, isn't it? That's powerful. The box opens and you know, swarming and it's loud and this is what we, and then what? Total silence. That's the word of God. It's the word of God. And we have it. And we can cherish it the same way. We've got it. It's in our language. It's on your lap. And you probably have ten at home too, right? It's great. We have it. So let's cherish it. Let's read it. Let's love it. Let's continue in it because it's God-breathed. That's why they reacted that way. Not because it's just some other book. It's God-breathed. Here's our second truth this morning. If it's God-breathed, the Scriptures are authoritative and sufficient. If it's God-breathed, the Scriptures are authoritative and sufficient. Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 goes on in 16. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because it's God-breathed, because it is the very Word of God, and He can't lie, it's truth, therefore it's authoritative in all our lives. Not only authoritative, but sufficient. It's sufficient. God's Word for the work He's going to do. It's profitable, the verses say, for teaching for reproof, to be corrected, 
and trains. All these things, Paul says to Timothy. It means that if we believe, if you and I believe the Word of God, we should allow it to work authoritatively in our lives, in my life, if it's really His Word. I think we, we have a tendency, and we know this, to be so individualistic that this is a really big challenge for all of us. All of us. I, I, I should have the authority to speak into my own life, into every corner of my life. And Paul's saying it should have the authority to speak into every corner of your life, your sexuality, your finances, my marriage, my friendships, your parenting, my parenting, our church life, every area, your work life, every corner, even the darkest ones, the furthest ones in the center of your life. And when we do that, it challenges us, doesn't it? It does me. It convicts us. It changes us. It corrects us because he says it's profitable. It's good for us. It's worth saying again this morning, if it is a God-inspired book, we should think that at some place in our life, it should offend you. At some place in your life, it should challenge you. At some place in your life, it should stop you dead in your tracks. If it's God's Word, and if it's authoritative. He's saying that creed and conduct go together. What we believe, doctrine and life, go together. They matter. They bump up into each other. It's relevant. They're together. Belief and practice is another way you might put it. What we believe and what we do should have authority. Remember, what happened in the garden? They, they, they began to doubt the belief. They began to doubt the doctrine. That's, that's why it's so important. What happens when we begin to doubt it? We go off the rails, don't we? They began to doubt the truth. And what happened? Their actions followed. Their actions followed. They followed suit into the, one of the greatest destructive disobedience that ever took place. Derailed humanity. But not God's plan, because we've got the book, don't we? The Bible. It's what shapes us, first and foremost. It's what should shape us, first and foremost. Not our opinions. Not our feelings. That's our day and age. Feelings are elevated to the highest compass in, in our lives. They're good, they're from God, but they're fallen too. Only His Word is the ultimate. Not what we think it should say, but what does it say? What does it say? I love this little phrase. Uh, we, this is the people we want to be. We want to think God's thoughts after Him. That's what we've got here. We want to be a people who think God's thoughts after Him. That's why it's so good. We have God's thoughts in this book. We wouldn't know, we wouldn't, there's so much we wouldn't know without it. It's like, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? How can you be restored to God? What do we need from Him? How has He accomplished it through Jesus Christ and the cross? All of that we wouldn't know without it. We want to be those people who think God's thoughts after Him and in turn be changed by God's words, by God's thoughts. It's sufficient too, God's word. It's not only authoritative, it's sufficient. So much in the church, I think we've thought, you know, we're not really equipped to handle that. Let's send that outside the church. We've done that, haven't we, with a lot of things. 
a lot of things. And yes, there are good resources outside the church. Yes, there are good voices to speak into our lives. But if it's profitable for all things, it too can handle issues like an eating disorder, gender identity struggles, marriage issues, um, friendship spats, a wayward child. If we believe it, that it's sufficient. We have resources here, even in the church, to counsel these things, to address these things. But we have to know what it says, that it's sufficient. It meets our deepest needs, is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And it will transform you from the inside out. That's what Paul's saying in these words. It's profitable for everything. It equips for every good work, he says, doesn't he, in verse 17? Every good work. It makes us competent, it says, for every good work. The word super has been overused, hasn't it, in our culture? The word super. Uh, oh, I, I was super tired, or he was super upset, or she was super late. But here it fits. What Paul's really saying is that God's word makes us super equipped. That's kind of what he's saying here. Super equipped. Not just equipped, not just competent, but super equipped. He's like saying it twice almost. It is what God wants to use in your life to grow you, to challenge you, to transform you, to, to, to equip you. Sunday is great, but that can't be all. It's God's Word. I love what John Stott said. He says, Scripture is the chief means. He uses other stuff, people and things in our life. But he says, Scripture is the chief means which God employs to bring the man of God to maturity. But here's the reason why. The reason it is the primary change agent. Why it's the, what do you call it? The chief means. Here's why. Here's why. Not because it's the book of rules. Not that. Yes, it has some great principles in it. If you live your life this way, things go better. You will flourish, the word is called. But it's not because it's a great book of rules. It is that, but it's so much more. Christianity is not just a great book of rules. It's not primarily about rule-keeping. Because when we open the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find Jesus. That's why. That's why it's the primary change agent. Not because it's a great book of rules. Not because it's got great heroes in it, if you looked at their lives. Not because it's got great heroes to emulate it. Here's why. It's our final truth. The scriptures are Christ-centered. The scriptures are Christ-centered. Take a look with me at 3.15. As I said, we're going backwards in the passage today. But, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We worked backwards this morning through the passage because... I wanted us to end with Jesus. I hope you get a sense that um, I like to do that with us because I think that's how real change happens. It's not because it's a book of rules. It's not because there's great moral examples and there's some of that. It's because when we open it, Old Testament and New, we find Jesus again with fresh eyes and a fresh exposure to what we need and the grace and the mercy 
that he gives. That's why we worked backwards today. Because Jesus is the center of the Bible. Jesus is actually what the entire book is about from beginning to end. And my hope is he'll be the hero of every sermon, the hero of every story of the Bible, week after week when we open it. Because that's what really changes your heart. When you're melted again by what Christ has done for you. And then you go, and it's true. It's in his word. The word of God is Christ-centered. Did you catch what that verse is saying? He's saying, did you see that there? He's saying, the sacred writings, the Old Testament can make you wise for salvation. Not the New Testament. Think of only first half of the book there. He's saying the sacred writings, the Old Testament, can make you wise for salvation in Jesus. The Bible. Even the Old Testament. As we said, it's not just a book of rules, not just stories of people to model. It's a book of salvation. Even the Old Testament. That's what Paul's saying. It's a story of rescue. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of God saving humanity from beginning to end. All the way. I would have to ask myself this question. Could you use the Old Testament to lead somebody to Jesus? Because that's the only thing they were using at that time. Could you do that? That's a hard one, isn't it? That's a really hard one. New Testament can be hard for us. But Old Testament... The tabernacle, the priest, the smoke, the blood. It's like, what? Could I use the Old Testament to lead somebody to Jesus? That's the very thing Paul is saying. And that's the very thing they were doing. That's what they had. The whole story from the garden to the final feast in heaven is an unfolding, you might call it, of God's his history, his historical plan of redemption. It's redemptive history unfolding in front of our eyes from beginning to end. Sometimes it's described like this, as one grand story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Let me say it again, because it's, kind of, it's kind of important. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the entire story of the Bible from beginning to end, right there in four words. The whole story from the garden to the end. The entire Bible narrates the story of redemption. Old Testament, announcing Jesus getting ready for Jesus. He's implicit inside it, and the New Testament comes and explains it. Do you remember the road to Emmaus with Jesus? Do you remember that? The road to Emmaus. Jesus was walking along with two of his followers, and he had a, he had a little mini seminary class with them, is what he did. Jesus with his followers. He said this to them, or Luke records this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, there's that phrase again, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's there in all the scriptures, all of them. The Old Testament wasn't just the first take. Like, it didn't work. I tried it. It didn't work. It's God's story of calling out a people, protecting a people, preparing that people for what? The coming Messiah. And when you read it that way, when you teach it that way, the Old Testament just pops off the page. It comes alive. That's why I'm so excited to teach the Old Testament here at Bethany Church and for us to get into it. We might even do a little uh, Genesis in the new year. Remember that story 
began with. Back in the garden, remember? We were talking there this morning. Remember that story? What did it begin with? Back in the garden. They didn't listen to God's word. And hasn't that been our problem ever since? They didn't listen to God's word. But here, I want you to see that even Jesus was present from day one, really. Take a look at Genesis 3.15. You might know this first. Our kids that went to summer camp do. This was a theme of summer camp. I will put enmity, this is after the fall, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is how it's described. The offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Who's that offspring? Christ. It's Christ. Who's the one that lied about God? The serpent. Satan. He will bruise it. Your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall crush your head. Jesus was there from Genesis 3.15. So you look at the history of Israel now and you go, why were they always being attacked? Why did everybody want to destroy little puny Israel? They were carrying the seed. They were, God was preparing the way. The Messiah was going to come through them. If Satan could win, what's the only thing he needs to do? Destroy those people. Why did those nations come after them? Why did they war against them? Because they were the chosen people that were going to bring the Messiah to the earth. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's how it pops off the page for us. It's a cosmic battle taking place right on the pages of history. Right there for us. The entire Old Testament is God protecting the line of Eve. It's kind of a simple way to think about it. But if that verse is true, the entire Old Testament is God protecting the line of Eve so that Jesus could be born. That's such good news. And he did it over thousands of years of history. I mean, if I, he could have done it in like a couple of weeks. Let's just have Jesus be born. No, I'm going to stretch it out over thousands of years of history to prove that I'm really God. And I'm going to keep these people. Through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, protecting the family line so it isn't snuffed out and the Messiah would come and he'd crush Satan. That's the Old Testament. It's amazing. And all the ways the prophets, the priests, the kings, the sacrifices, you'll hear me use this language, they were really just types and shadows of what was to come. The true prophet, the true priest, the true king who would come and defeat Satan. That's the Old Testament. That's Christ in the Old Testament. It's thrilling. The book is about him. And where did he crush the serpent? At the cross. And he died for your sins. Do you believe that today? We believe that today. It's what the book teaches. It's in here, breathed out by God. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's Christ-centered. It's in here, but it's also right here in front of us. He gives us a picture, too, at the table. We get to not only hear it here, we get to come to the table as well and have these elements, these pictures, just one more thing of God's grace that he said, I don't want them to ever forget this. That I'm the Messiah who came to crush Satan. I'm going to write it down. I'm also give it in a way they can taste and touch it too. Because it's that important. It's here too at the table. And that's what we come to do today. To remember again that the whole story is about Jesus. That's where this table brings us today. Here's what I want us to do. I want us just to think for a moment, as we do on communion Sundays, just take a moment. Maybe you thank God for the story and that it's there and he's kept it for us for thousands of years. Maybe you search your own heart and ask, where is it not 
being authoritative in my life? Where am I not letting it speak into my life? Maybe for you it's the first time of believing that Christ is the Messiah. He's the one that died for your sins and really rose from the grave. The book says that. Paul died for it. Peter died for it. I wouldn't die for a myth. But maybe the truth, they did die for it. Maybe today if that's for you, contemplating that the first time. But let's all do that for a moment um, as the servers begin to come forward to prepare.